use this phrase at our church, the way of Jesus, and it means this, that the way of Jesus is a lifestyle that embraces the priorities and the rhythms and the pace of Jesus here and now. But there's a, there's a way that Jesus lived his life. There's a way that he prioritized his life um, that we all should take a note from. And so today's message title is The Way of Racial Reconciliation. And let's be honest, right now, uh, there are some of you that are really excited that we're having this conversation. I mean, I've seen your surveys. We do two surveys a year, and we ask people, what is it that you want us to talk about? And it's amazing how many people say, we want to talk about what it means to be a church that's about racial reconciliation. And then I know for another amount of us in the room, we're actually very nervous right now, right? We are nervous. You're like, come on, Colin, I just started liking this church. You know, I just got over the fact that we meet in a YMCA and that you wear skinny jeans. Come Come on, man. Is this really what you're going to talk about today? And the answer is yes. And the reason is this. It is time to stop letting political agendas, social media, and news outlets divide us. And it's time to start practicing the way of Jesus. If you're in agreement with that, can we put our hands together and trust that that's what we want to be about? Amen. And so I asked our creative team to give me a little bit more time today in the context of today's message. So here's what I want you to do. You go ahead and settle in, maybe sit forward, do whatever you've got to do, um, because we're going to be here for a little bit of time, because I'm going to answer four really significant questions that I think are important. The first one is this. What is Jesus' perspective about race when we talk about it? What is Jesus' way forward? That's the second question we'll talk about. Why should we care about racial reconciliation? That's the third question we'll answer. And lastly, how can we follow Jesus. So let me just kind of start with some terms here. What is race? Um, race is a system human society has used to categorize people. Uh, mental note, this is not unique to the United States of America. We have been using the concept of race since the beginning of time to categorize people. And there's actually nothing inherently wrong with the idea of being able to identify people based upon their background or their history or their ancestry or their culture or where they come from. Um, but what can be problem was that word race turns into the word racism. And this is what racism is. What is racism? It's a system that prioritizes and benefits certain groups of people people over others. So to, to identify with a race is not problematic at all. But when that identification with that race begins to make us think that we are better than or deserve, more deserving of or, uh, you know, prioritize or ought to be more benefited than another, that's when the concept of racism becomes problematic. And here's the problem with racism is that the root of racism is actually sin. We'll see that here in just a moment. It's the fact that you and I are broken. And so while we try to use categories to put people in certain places, when we begin to think of ourselves as more than we ought, that's actually where sin falls into place. And the result of racism is division. And if I could be honest, I think we're in a cultural moment in our day and our time uh, where the enemy has done a really great job of being the one who controls the narrative as we talk about our identity and who we are as people and created in our nation, created in our churches, and created in our, in our world an incredible amount of division. And we know this, that a house that is divided against itself cannot Stand. That's what at, what's at stake here. What's in the balance is not only our nation, but really our, our churches. How we have this conversation, or if we even have this conversation, is incredibly important. Because Jesus prayed in John 17 that we would be one like he and his Father are one. There would be a unity amongst us that would be a beacon to a watching world about just how powerful and just how incredible and just how transcendent the love of God is. 
And so what I don't want to do today is, is spend the majority of my time uh, talking to you about my opinion, because I have an opinion, um, and it's an opinion that has been rooted in my stories and my histories and my background. Uh, it's an opinion that, that has pain involved in it, uh, an opinion uh, that has hurt involved in it as well. But I think to serve you well, my job is, is not so much to, to give you my opinion, but my job is to teach you the Word of God, to teach you what God has to say about this particular topic. And so what I want to do in the next five minutes or so, let's see if I can do it, is I want to entrench us in Jesus's perspective, God's perspective, as it pertains to race and his heart towards all types of of people. And I'm going to start in the beginning of the book. So what is Jesus's perspective? I'm going to give you a survey of the Bible here in the next few minutes. And to be honest, there's so much scripture here. We're not going to be able to go through all of it. If you're nerdy or if this is something that you're interested in learning more about, go ahead and pull out your phone, take some pictures because we are going to fly. What is God's perspective about race? Well, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. This is the beginning of the book. If you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, this is the starting point for um, what Christian, um, Christians believe or followers of Jesus believe is God's heart towards humanity. We find this in the first verses, the first chapter of the first book, that God has created all of humanity in his image, meaning no matter what color you are, no matter what place you've been from, no matter what background you have, every single person that has walked on the planet of the earth bears the image of God, that God's imprint and his fingerprint is on every single one of us. Genesis 12, we see God goes to Abram and he tells him that through him, all peoples of the world will be blessed. That word peoples or nations or earth, whenever you see those words being used, is in reference to all types of people, groups, no matter what color they are, no matter what language they speak, or no matter where they're from. We get to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 to 19. And, and God is establishing his, 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 um, his tabernacle, the way in which uh, his, uh, the Jewish people who are going to be the carriers of this good news ought to organize. And he says this, that he has no favorites and that their responsibility is to love the foreigner, to love the person who doesn't look like them, talk like them, or think like them. And then we get to Joshua chapter 4, verse 24, and we find that um, as Joshua enters into the promised land that God is going to establish, that he is creating this work. It says that God does all of this so that all peoples, every tribe, nation, and tongue would know God. And then we move through 1 Samuel and 1 Kings. And I love 1 Kings. It says, do whatever the foreigner asks of you to welcome them into faith. This is the expectation of the people of God. And then Psalm 67, 4 says, let the nations be glad. Why, why should every single people, why should every color, tribe, nation, and tongue be thankful? Because the good news of God is not for a select group of people, but it is for every single person in the world. But then we get to Isaiah and Isaiah 25. And Isaiah is a prophetic book. It's written with eyes towards what's going to come when Jesus arrives on the scene. And, and I could pick a ton of verses from Isaiah 25, uh, from Isaiah, but I'll just work with 25, which says that God has prepared a table and a feast for all peoples. How many of us like to eat? Anybody like to eat? Amen. God is preparing a feast for every single person. And I believe that that feast involves every kind of food that you like. Throw in your Mexican food, throw in your Cuban, throw in, throw in your Turkish food. Anybody like Greek food? Throw in your Greek food. It's all going to be at the table. And then we get to Jonah. Good old Jonah. God tells Jonah to go and preach the good news to the people of Nineveh. And Jonah says, no, they're not like me. I don't like them. I don't like who they are and what they represent. And God's like, cool, I'll just go ahead and make sure that you have a three-day vacation and a whale then, right? And then he sends him to Nineveh. And Jonah goes, Jonah doesn't go with a heart that says, I want to go, but Jonah goes 
begrudgingly. And then you get to Habakkuk and Zebaniah and Malachi 1.10 and 11, the last, the last book in the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible. Malachi says that God's name will be known among every nation, all tribes, all tongues, all people. And then for 400 years, there's silence. Nothing is written. And the people of God are waiting on this promised king that's going to come and make everything right. And then we get to Luke chapter 2. And an angel shows up to some shepherds who are taking care of their flocks. And this is what the angel says. I've got great news for great joy. Would you say this word in blue with me? For all people. Because today, a Savior is born. And it's good news that it's for all people. Because that Savior would live out that reality. We get to the Gospels. The New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, eyewitness accounts of people who walk with Jesus, spent time with Jesus. We find that Jesus, in Matthew chapter 8, goes and he heals a Roman centurion's daughter, a Roman girl. And in Jewish culture in that moment and in that time and place, it was illegal for a Jewish man to interact with a Roman, to interact with what they called a Gentile. Basically, there were Jewish people and then there were Gentiles. Gentiles were the kitchen sink of everybody else who wasn't Jewish. It was illegal to interact with them. And we see Jesus walk right into the centurion's home and heal that girl. Then Mark 6, 14 and 18, Jesus orders his disciples to go and preach to all of creation, meaning this message is not just for a specific group of people. And then Luke 10, verse 25 and 37, we get the story of the Good Samaritan. Anybody know the story of the Good Samaritan? The story goes like this. There's a man who got beat, got, you know, he got beat up, left for dead on the streets. And the first guy that walks by and sees him is a priest, and the priest doesn't stop to help the guy. The next person who walks is uh, the, 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 the Levitical um, individual. The, the, the people who were Levites during that day, they were like varsity Jewish people. They were varsity in religion. They knew the best. And the people that were listening to this conversation would have said, oh, surely the person who's going to help the guy that's on the ground is going to either be the priest or the Levite. These are our heroes. These are the people that we believe in. These are our nation's heroes. But they don't help. And then another guy comes, and Jesus talks about, this, this guy, this, this Samaritan guy. And you've got to understand that the Jewish people hated the Samaritans. They called the Samaritans dogs and half-breeds. They believed that the Samaritans were the worst of the worst. The, the Samaritans were darker-skinned than they were, and the Samaritans were people that had intermarried, and they were hated by the Jews. In fact, in, in first century temple Judaism, one of the prayers that would be prayed every single morning by the faith, the Jews, Jewish faithful was, God, I pray that you would not hear the prayers of the Samaritans. This is how much they hated the Samaritans. So when Jesus introduces the Samaritan into the story, everyone who's listening to him expects that the Samaritan's going to beat the guy up again and take whatever money he's got left because that's what Samaritans do. But no, Jewish Jesus the rabbi says the Samaritan's the hero. He's the one who picks up this individual and takes care of of him. And Jesus said, you ought to love your neighbor like the Samaritan. We cannot capture the scandal of what Jesus is saying. And then we get to John 4, verse 1 through 42. And Jesus not only tells a story about a Samaritan, but then he actually sits down with a Samaritan. And not just a Samaritan, a Samaritan woman. So Jesus is breaking two rules right now. You don't talk to Samaritans and you don't talk to women. And Jesus is doing both of those things at the well. And he unpacks her story. And he says, why don't you go tell your husband? And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right, because you're a prostitute. You've had multiple husbands. And she says, how do you know this? And Jesus says, well, because I am uh, the true water, the living water, the hope that you've been looking for. I am the Messiah. And look at me, you've got to catch this. The first evangelist in the recorded new 
Testament is a Samaritan woman because she runs into her village where she's already hated and despised and looked down on and says, come and see the man who has told me everything I have ever done. And the scripture tells us that the Samaritans come and they get saved in the droves. This is the story of the Bible. And then Jesus does his kind of Chris Angel levitation effect, right? He goes to the cross, he dies, he defeats death. A couple days later, he's having a fish cookout with his boys, his disciples. A couple of days later, after he's appeared to 500, he ascends into heaven. He gives his disciples what we call the Great Commission, this call to go and make the, make the disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 1, Luke, who's a historian, records it. And he tells the disciples, Jesus tells the disciples, that you'll be my witnesses that word witness means the word martyr, that you're going to die for me. You're going to sacrifice your life for me in Jerusalem. That's the city they're in. Judea, that's the region that they're around. Samaria, that's the people they hate to the ends of the earth. That's the people they can't stand at all. And then in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit, God's very manifest presence, falls on them while they're waiting on God. They spill out into the streets of Jerusalem, speaking in different languages. And if you go back and look at Acts chapter 2, you'll find the names of the Arabs and the Cretans and the people from Cyprus. Basically, every single type of nation that was visiting Jerusalem could hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus, in their language. Because this message has been for everybody. But then, but then the disciples and apostles do what so many of us do. Because let's be honest, interacting with people that are different than us than can kind of be difficult and tough. And so they kind of just stick to Jerusalem. They never leave Jerusalem. In Acts 10, Peter, you know Peter, that guy who denied Jesus three times, right? And then Jesus restores and then he preaches and 3,000 people get saved in, in Acts. It's an incredible story. Peter's hanging out um, at a buddy's house, and he has a vision, and the sheet comes down. And the sheet is filled with a bunch of different food that historically the Jewish um, religion, the first century Judaism, has said is wrong. And God looks at Peter, and he says, Peter, I want you to kill and eat. And he says, oh, God, I can't do that. And God says, do not call unclean what I have made clean. And I can imagine that Peter's sitting there, right? And he's eating this really nice, he sees these, you know, these pork shanks right here, you know. And he has bacon for the first time. And that's when he believes there is a God, you know. And right at that moment, the door gets knocked on. And this Roman centurion sends, um, Cornelius is his name, sends a runner to, to Peter's house because he has a vision. He says, yo, uh, Peter, he literally said, yo, it's in your Bible. He said, Peter, um, I need you at my house. So Peter walks into um, a Roman general's home, a place where he is not allowed to go. And he literally says, I'm only here because God has said not to call unclean what he has made clean. You know that I, a Jew, should not interact with you, a Gentile. That's like the worst welcome you could ever have, right, when you walk into somebody's house. And about 10 minutes into his message, before Peter can even get through the gospel, the Holy Spirit falls in a powerful way. All of these Gentiles start speaking in tongues, start prophesying. And, and Peter says, I don't know what to do. Why, well, I guess we should just baptize him. And these Gentiles who are not Jewish get baptized. And in Acts chapter 11, Everybody's like, whoa, 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 hold on, what happened? They hear about what Peter did. And instead of all of the Christians being excited about the people who are from other nations knowing God, they say, hold on, we're not allowed to do that. And then in Acts 11, we find that the church is scattered. 
Why is the church scattered from Jerusalem? Well, we know why. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word of no one except Jews. Okay, so hold on. Here's what happens. God scatters the church because guess what? He gave them 10 chapters and they didn't do what they were supposed to do. He said, go to the nations. They're like, no, nah, we're good. We'll stay in Jerusalem. And so he scatters them. And then all of these people that have this good news only tell other Jews in the other cities they go. And I want you to get this, okay? Because the apostles who walked with Jesus struggled to love and care and see people that were different than them. It is perfectly reasonable for us to have that struggle too. But there were some of them, look, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, so not the Jewish Christians, but these other guys who heard about it, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. These are the Romans of the day. Also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And all of a sudden we got a really big problem. Because it's not just Cornelius' house and a couple of Romans that have become followers of Jesus. It's people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. It's people all around the world. And headquarters of Christianity in Jerusalem is like, what do we do? We don't know what to do. So in Acts 15, they had this really, really big debate. And James, Jesus' half-brother, stands up after the end of the debate. And he has these words. He says, we should not make it difficult. We should not make it difficult. For the Gentiles to come to the Lord. And he quotes, he quotes Old Testament prophecy to make his argument. Let's get to the end of the story. Revelation 7, 9. This is God's vision for what he set out to do for all people in all time. He said, after this I looked. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So what is Jesus' perspective? What is God's perspective? God's perspective is that all of us are made in his image. All of us are worthy of belonging. And all of us are meant to be in relationship with him. That's the heart of Jesus. No matter where you're from, what your background is, what language you speak, and what version of melanin is on your skin. This is really good news for a lot of us, isn't it? Uh, because if you are not ethnically Jewish, you are on the outside looking in if this was not true. I am on the outside looking in if this is not true. That the Savior that I worship, the King that has saved me, if he did not care for all peoples, I would not be in his family. So Jesus gives us a way forward. See, Paul is a Jewish man who hated Christians and one of the reasons why he hated Christians was because of how much they were upending the cultural norms of the day. See, the Jewish people had a way of living life. They had a, a standard in, in terms of what it meant to be in first century Judaism. And these, these Christians, these people of the way, as they were called, were upending the process because they were allowing anyone and everyone to be a part. And so, so Saul, who eventually is named Paul, Saul, as a Jewish first century Jewish leader, murders Christians and oversees their death because he sees this conversation, hear me, about the nations becoming one as problematic for the faith that he believes in until he meets Jesus. Because Jesus changes the game when you meet him. And so Paul is writing to a church in Ephesus in around 60 or so AD. He's given his life to following God. He's planted churches throughout the Mediterranean rim. He's gone from hating the people that are not like him to loving the people that are like him. 
And he gives us an insight in a window into what Jesus has done to come and purchase our unity. And in this, what we see, and Jesus' way forward, are a series of questions that I think all of us have to ask in our cultural moment. If we're going to continue the story of being a united community of faith. This is how he starts. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the uncircumcision. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. So here's what he's saying. There were two groups of people before. There were the circumcised, meaning those that were traditionally Jewish, and those who were the uncircumcised, those who were out. And you were at one time excluded from citizenship, meaning those of us who were not ethnically Jewish could not be a part of the family in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Basically, Paul starts by saying this. Don't forget who's on the outside looking in. Would you say, I am on the count of three? One, two, three. I am. You are on the outside looking in, if not for Jesus. So thankful that in Acts 15, James steps up to say, we should not make it hard for people who are not like us to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Because if not, it means that the barrier of entry for us would have been incredibly high or impossible. So what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do to create reconciliation between people who don't look the same, think the same, or talk the same? The first thing is this, is that Jesus crosses the divide. Write that down in your notes. Jesus crosses the divide. This is what Paul says. But now in Christ Jesus, you are who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is what it means. It means that Jesus spoke our language, he wore our clothes, and he embraced our culture to connect with us. Pay attention to this. Jesus brings us near by making the first move, not the other way around. Jesus, God himself, crosses the barrier between him and humanity, and he moves first. Which begs this question, are we willing to make the first move for community? You know, I think we're in a moment right now in our nation, and maybe you feel this, um, where depending on what news outlet you listen to, depending what social media, you know, you tend to follow. And it's interesting, right? There are algorithms on Facebook so that once you um, start looking at one thing, it begins to, you know, continue to give you more of the same. 67% of Americans today get their primary news from Facebook, which is so scary, isn't it? When you think about it. I mean, it's scary when, you know, I think about, you know, I I can think something, right? And it's like Facebook hears it and then all of my ads are about that thing, you know? And you need to know this. When you click on a video on Facebook to take a certain political position, Facebook uses an algorithm to give you the same kind of content over and over again. And so we end up living in the echo chambers of our own opinions, not knowing what is real or what is actually factual. And the result of that is we get opinions and positions and perspectives that are not based on a breadth of information, but, but are based on more information that creates more division instead of unity. Let me ask you this. Are you willing to make the move first to community, to cross the divide racially, to cross the divide ethnically, to cross the divide when it comes to politics for the sake of understanding others? Here's my concern. Is that for many of us, this is a difficult thing that we do not do. In fact, I'd invite you to pull out your phone right now. To pull out your phone and maybe go to your favorites. And as you scroll through your favorites or you go through your recent calls, I want you to think about the people that you spend time with the most. Do they all look like you? Do they all think like you? 
Do they all vote like you do? In 2014, a study was done about the ways in which people racially in the North America interact with one another. And the, the findings were staggering. I want to show you this, these numbers. Uh, the first one is in pertains to Anglos in North America. That for every 91 Anglo, uh, everyone, for, not, for, for Anglos, 91 of their friends uh, were also Anglo. And every, for every 91 Anglo friends, there was one black friend, one Latino friend, and one Asian friend. I think that's problematic because it means that our perspectives on the racial conversation in our country, if it's framed by people who have all had the same exact experiences as us, who have come from the same backgrounds and histories as us, it prevents us from seeing what is actually occurring. And so we kind of sit back and think, why in the world are people freaking out about that? Why are people stressing out about that? Why, can we all just calm down? Why is this such a big deal? Well, maybe the reason why we don't realize it's such a big deal is because everyone that we are spending time with has the same exact perspective. And Jesus didn't do that. Jesus crossed racial divides. Jesus crossed every divide. It's not better for, for those of us that are, that are black, those of us who are Latino, for every eight um, friends that we have uh, that are of our same race, we have one um, that is not. But here's what's even more concerning, is that when this study was done, 75% of Anglo-Americans, so white people in the United States of America, had zero friends of color. And we wonder why we don't get each other. We wonder why we don't understand. But it's not just a, a white person issue. Because two-thirds of black Americans have zero white friends. And we have a responsibility to recognize that we're not going to understand each other. And we're not going to be reconciled with each other if everyone we know looks like us, thinks like us, talks like us. Here's a principle I want you to just emblazon in your heart. The further away you are, the simpler the solution seems. But the closer you get, the more complex it becomes. Who are the people that are informing the way that we see the world? So Jesus crosses the divide. Here's the second thing. Jesus destroys the walls. That's what we see in verse 14 to 15. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, meaning Gentiles and Jewish people, the two kind of groups that were against each other, made them one, and he's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and its regulations. So I want to show you a picture here. Uh, this was excavated um, from a site in 1870 um, around um, the Jewish temple, uh, during, um, which was dated back from about 35 BCE um, to about 70 CE when the temple was uh, destroyed. And what's emblazoned on this is super important because as Paul is talking about a dividing wall of hostility, he's not just talking about a metaphor. He's talking about something that people in Ephesus and people who are reading his letters were all well aware of. That in the wall, in the temple in Jerusalem, uh, there was uh, emblazoned this statement. 
No stranger is to enter within the balustrade. That was a certain area that was reserved for Jewish people round the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death. Welcome to church, right? So here's how it worked. Uh, You had the inner courts, which was for Jewish men. You had the secondary courts, which were Jewish women. And then there was a wall that separated those people from the Gentile temple courts. And emblazoned on that wall in Greek and Latin so that they could understand was this. If you come across this wall, if you try to come closer to God, you are responsible for your very own death. You know when Jesus flips the tables and is really upset? Anybody kind of get confused by that scripture, right? I thought Jesus was a kind person. I thought Jesus was, you know, hippie Jesus, never did anything bad, right? That kind of thing. You know that there's a verse, right? There's a story that's told in Matthew where Jesus is in the temple in Jerusalem and he's angered and he starts flipping all of these tables and he says, my house is meant to be, a, my father's house is meant to be a house of prayer. Do you know where he flips those tables? He flips the tables in the Gentile court because the Jewish people did not believe that the Gentile court was actually even a place of worship. His frustration was with the racist attitudes of the people during that day who did not even create and honor the space for the Gentiles. And he flips tables because of that. Because they would never do that inside their little home, but they would gladly exploit others that they didn't see as equally valuable of God's love. Let me ask you this question. Are we willing to tear down a wall or throw a table when we see racial injustice? Um, About two weeks ago, um, I uh, was at um, Panera here around the corner. um, And I just want to paint the picture for you. I I was wearing um, a black um, Nike long sleeve runner shirt, okay? I was wearing black Lululemon um, running pants because they're incredibly comfortable. (laughs) White sneakers and a white Nike hat, all matching. (laughs) I walk into Panera and I see an old missionary friend who happened to be in town. Um, She's Anglo, um, mid-50s. And I run over to give her a hug and tell her, hey, I'm so happy to see you. She takes a step back, holds me by the shoulders, looks at me and said, oh, I see we're going for the jihadi look today. It's back when I had a beard. If you're wondering why that's problematic, let me explain. I cannot control my brown skin. Agreed? Facial hair and brown skin does not mean that I'm a terrorist. (laughs) But that she felt it was appropriate and okay to associate my existing with terror should be cause for concern for all of us. And she was a missionary (laughs) who serves overseas. Here's what was more concerning for me, because I hear stuff like that often, is that there was another Anglo missionary who knows me better, who stood right there 
and said nothing. Are we willing to break walls, (laughs) throw tables? Because if in the church we can't be culturally aware enough to know that commenting on a person's appearance as they exist in the world isn't okay, then how in the world do we expect a watching world to think that we've got our act put together? Or that um, about a year or so ago, I'm preaching a message, and I asked for a call and a response. And I have a person in our church come up to me and say, hey, stop trying to make this church a black church. You may not know this, but you have a black pastor. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not trying to make a church a color. I'm trying to lead a church that looks like our city and looks like our community and is welcome for all. So we need to understand particularly if you are a part of majority culture, that your silence on issues of racial injustice speak volumes to your minority brothers and sisters. Because while we cannot turn a blind eye to it, and you might be able to, it creates a bigger gap and a bigger divide. So let me ask you this. When was the last time you threw a table and you spoke up to your racist uncle at the dinner table when he said something at Thanksgiving? Or when was the last time you posted on social media? I don't know all of the details, but I'm mourning with my brothers and sisters from what I've heard about what happened in the news. Or the last time you've looked at somebody else And said, hey, that comment and that joke you made, it's not appropriate. Because that person bears the image of God and is loved by them. Jesus crosses the divide. Jesus destroys the barriers of hostility. And Jesus creates unity through sacrifice. Ephesians 2.15, his purpose was to create himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. The very fact that those of us who are non-Jewish ethnically are in the family of God is because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross reconciles us with God and with one another forever. So here's what the word reconciliation means. Reconciliation means to reunite what was once separated. It means to integrate that which once was segregated. You see, forgiveness is personal. I can forgive somebody and never have to have an interaction with them. But that is not what God did for me and you. Are you tracking? God did not just forgive us from a distance, but he reconciled to us. Forgiveness is personal. Reconciliation is relational. 
It means I am not just going to to deal with the issues that we have from a distance, but I'm going to get close and face to face because you matter to me. Which begs this question, are we willing to sacrifice our preferences for unity? Are we willing to sing songs that maybe we didn't grow up singing in our churches for the sake of unity? Are we willing to participate in conversations and lay down what we want for the sake of being a place where everybody can find themselves in it? So why? Here's the third question. Why should we care about racial reconciliation? I mean, one might be able to make the argument, Jesus did it, right? Jesus took care of it. He died on the cross. We're reconciled to him. We'll get it figured out in heaven. Why is the church uniquely responsible for racial reconciliation? Isn't that somebody else's issue? Well, I want to give you two reasons. The first one is this. We must be able to address every sin in our culture with the hope of Jesus' good news. Do we agree? We've got to be able to address every sin in our culture with Jesus' hope of the good news. And we've got to admit that racism and partiality is one of our culture's sins. It is the sin of our country. Our nation is responsible for systematically oppressing African Americans for 350 years through chattel slavery and through denying them basic rights until the 1960s. Our country is responsible for taking native people's lands, promising them a portion of it, then murdering them through a system of specifically creating and crafting diseases to control the population and then relegating them to areas that we at any moment in time can decide to take as our own. Our nation's history involves interning 110,000 Japanese citizens during World War II. Our nation is a place where in the state of Louisiana in 2009, an interracial couple was denied a marriage license on the basis of race. And in a day, and in a country where today there are still 178 cases open and being monitored by the Department of Justice as it pertains to segregation in our school system. We have come a long way, but we are not done. Racism is the sin of our city. The community of Paramore, that's just a couple of minutes down the road, was designed in 1880 by James Paramore to, quote, be a place to house the blacks that serve white Orlandoans. And the road right by I-4 called Division Avenue was the road that black people and people of color were not allowed to cross in our city through the 1960s that if they crossed after sunset, they were legally allowed to be lynched because they were perceived as a threat to the surrounding community. And we live in a county, you need to know this, that has the sixth highest amount of lynchings in the history of the United States of America. And we still live in a nation where we are willing to call people with brown skin terrorists for what they've perpetrated, which is terrorism. But we are unwilling to admit collectively that white lynch mobs 
that murdered and lynched more people of color than those who have been killed in all terrorist attacks in the United States and abroad. We still do not call those white lynch mobs terrorists. This is our city. This is our community. This is our story. And it's not just our nation. It's not just our city. But it's our churches. Do you know why the black church was created? The black church was created because they were not allowed in white churches. Because while there were sit-ins at the counters during the civil rights movement, there were sit-ins at churches. If you read Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail, he will tell you that one of his greatest concerns is the silence of Anglo clergy during the movement. That black people were arrested and taken out of churches. That the reason why we have Southern Baptists and the PCA is because of their decision and desire to support slavery and segregation in our nation's history. This is our culture's sin. And what I love about the gospel is that Jesus calls it what it is, sin. And then he gives us grace and forgiveness and hope and offers reconciliation, which leads to the second reality, why this should matter to us. Because reconciliation is every Jesus follower's responsibility. So what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 20. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Keep going. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. So here's what I want you to see. Write this down. Reconciliation is the follower of Jesus' both ministry. It's what we do, according to Paul, and it's our message. It's what we say. What we do is reconcile. What we say is there's a reconciling God who welcomes everyone and brings everyone into a new family. Which leads to the last question. How? How do we do this? Anybody feel the weight of this a little bit and think, okay, great. But how do I do this? Like, Colin, do I just, like, take the next brown person out, like, to lunch? Like, please don't do that. Like, there ain't enough of us to be able to handle all those appointments, all right? Like, they, like don't do that. How do I do this? I want to give you four things quickly. The first one is this, okay? Stop with the binaries. Okay? Stop with the binaries. We live in a culture that says to, to believe in one thing means you must believe against something else. To be for one thing means you're against something else, right? Okay, we need to stop that conversation. I love this. In Joshua, this is such a beautiful biblical text. Joshua is marching in to take the land of Canaan. He sees an angel and he says to the angel, are you for us or are you against us? And the angel says, I'm for neither. I'm for the kingdom of God. We don't have to live in this either or reality anymore because God has given us a third option and a better option. So hear me. I can say black lives matter and I can believe and say blue lives matter at the same time. I can say I lament over the 
the horrors of what people are experiencing Central and South America and pray and hope and have compassion about the pain that innocent people are walking through and at the same time say, I support good, smart, border, secure borders for our nation's sovereignty. I can be both things. I can believe that, that people of color have been subjugated and oppressed in our history and at the same time agree that we have to be wise about the way that we have conversations about this today. I can say that we've made progress, but I don't have to say because we've made progress, it means that we're living in a post-racial America. Mental note, we are not living in a post-racial America. We're not living in a post-racial society. You know why? Because racism is sin. And last time I checked, no sin is ever going to go away fully until Jesus returns. It's just our turn. It's just our turn to do what, what the rest of humanity has been dealing with forever to reconcile where people want to create division. Just stop with the binaries. Here's the second one. Stop with the blindness. If I haven't offended you yet, I'm about to now. All right, stop with the blindness. Here's the first thing. There's two types of blindness we need to stop with. Number one, please stop with the color blindness. Okay, I want to give you two reasons. The first one is this. Um, God made us different shades. And it's a part of his creative beauty to do that. Okay? So let's not celebrate the tan that we go get at the beach, but invalidate the tan that I got in my mother's womb. Let's acknowledge that God is a beautiful creator. And that to see color and to see culture and to see ethnicity and to see the unique contributions that everyone brings to the table is actually the beauty of the gospel. That every tribe, nation, and tongue is going to come to heaven. You realize we're not going to just sing in English when we get to heaven? Because every tribe, nation, and tongue is going to be there. So let's not be colorblind. Here's the second reason why we don't need to be colorblind. If you're right-handed, go ahead and raise your hand. Where are my right-handed people at? Yeah? Okay. If you're left-handed, go ahead and raise your hand, left-handed people. Okay, good, good. Let me, let me ask you this, okay? Uh, to my left-handed people in the room. Left-handed people, you ever noticed that when you were a kid growing up in school that the world was made for right-handed people? Yes. <laughs> like every single desk, the right-handed people got to hang out, right, and write like this. And you're out here in space like, Lord, help me, right? You know that thing? If you play golf, you can go to any store, get the golf clubs you want. If you're a left-handed player, you can't. You want to play a guitar, you can get a guitar anywhere you want if you're a left-handed player. Like, okay. Right-handed people. Right-handed people. We don't have to worry about whether or not the world's been made for us or not. <laughs> right? But to say, oh, I don't, I don't notice that people are right or left-handed, okay, fine. Guess who does notice? Every left-handed person. So to not notice color told you I'd offend you, is a privilege that majority culture gets to have in a world that was made for them. So when you say that you're colorblind, understand that what you are doing in some ways is invalidating the fact that I cannot see the world that way and neither can any person in minority culture. But you don't have to feel guilty that you're right-handed. Enjoy that you're right-handed. Just don't think or speak or act like everybody in the world is. Here's the other blindness that we need to stop with. Historical blindness. Historical blindness. Like some of us don't know 
that part of the reason why people of color in our communities struggle so much to build wealth is that because after World War II, when the GI Bill was passed, the responsibility for the GI Bill was left up to the states. And because it was left up to the states, people in the South, particularly the people in the South, particularly minorities in the South, were not given the same access to the VA subsidies, government subsidies, mortgage benefits, and educational opportunities that their other counterparts in the war had received as well. And we all know that one of the primary ways that you build wealth is by purchasing a home and being able to hand that home off to your next generation, right? There were 3,000 VA loans given in the state of Mississippi in 1947. Two of them went to people of color. We need to understand our history. And if this is a world that maybe you don't know much about, I don't have time to talk to you, to, to you completely, but if this is an area that you want to learn, I would encourage you to email hello at nonachurch.com for a reading list and Jesus-centered resources if you want to learn more about racial reconciliation. If you want to understand about the narrative that's actually a part of our country, maybe the blind spots that we have, the blind spots that, that I have, let, let's go on this journey together. Thirdly, stop with the blame. It's not the government's fault that we're in this position. It's not the news media's fault that we're in this position. It is our responsibility to be a beacon of light to a watching world about what unity and connection and belonging can be. Dr. John Perkins, um, who uh, was the son of sharecroppers, who saw his brother lynched, African-American man um, who loves Jesus, I think says it so well. He says this, the reason... We haven't solved the race problem in America after hundreds of years is that people apart from God are trying to create unity while people under God who already have unity are not living out the unity we already possess. That'll preach. The result of both of these conditions is disastrous for America. Our failure to find cultural unity as a nation is directly related to the church's failure to preserve our spiritual unity. The church has already been given unity because we've been made part of the same family. That's our heart. It's 2019, the most segregated hour in America is still 11 a.m. Let's figure this out. Let's be this kind of people. Let's be this kind of church. Stop with the binary, stop with the blindness, stop with the blame, and lastly, start with the gospel. Imagine this perspective. Allow what God has done for you to be the lens through which you see every person. Imagine if we allowed what God has done for me. He has made the two one. He has made me right with him. He's crossed the divide. He's sacrificed for me. He has broken down the barrier and the walls. He's done all of those things. Imagine if that was the lens by which I saw every single person in my life. So how do we move forward? How do we practice reconciliation? One friendship at a time. One conversation at a time. And a whole lot of prayer.